Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. Uh, no, I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Welcome to another installment of the greatest moments in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 206, Die Hard. It was bound to happen eventually. You knew at some point we were going to do it as a Christmas movie. It just had to be for longtime listeners of the greatest moments. They'll remember the hotly contested debate that sprung up during the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids episode (laughs) for some reason. Where it started as an attack on Gremlins, yeah, yeah, and then it morphed into <laughs> Die Hard being brought in and just me flipping out. I about feel like, yeah, it was probably maybe the hottest take on the show in terms of like how the listenership reacted to it. There were some people texting. At what is he talking like, about? At least until we shit all over Breaking Bad. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Which, that's true. I mean, we didn't really shit all over Breaking Bad, but we were kind of just less than enthusiastic about doing it on the show. Yeah. That's okay, though. It's okay to have an opinion. First of all, I guess we should just get this out of the way. I still am 100% adamant that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie. Yeah, I was wondering. I'm like, should we just do like a PTI thing where I just have the side of it is Well, what do you think a- on your own? I don't care. <laughs> that's like my real thought about it it's just like it's a movie that takes place at christmas i mean i guess the people that want to categorize like these all christmas movies like the alternative christmas movies like lethal weapon because it also takes place at christmas which also shockingly kind of similar like feel overall yeah to this, this movie feels like it was written by shane black yeah because he sets a lot of movies at christmas but it's not right it just feels like it is so okay i mean if there's this whole attitude that these are alternative christmas movies just because of that i'm fine with that but i don't know it's certainly not something that i think about like with my garfield holiday special that's true i think what i'm saying is i still hold that position that it's not a christmas movie but what originally my point was when this was all brought up (laughs) in that episode was not whether or not die hard or gremlins or christmas movies it was more that i was annoyed at how often that people are telling you that they are it, yeah. be, it had become a thing i think it's kind of run its course it's not really yeah. shouted okay. in your face anymore when people are talking about movies but right. it was definitely 
a trend that I found hyper annoying is if every person telling you that it was was the first person who had had that thought. It feels like it had to be crowbarred into a conversation. It's like someone wants to be set up. Like they want to be asked what's their favorite Christmas yeah, movie so I they know. can say Die Hard. And it's oh. like, I'm never asking someone what their favorite Christmas movie is. Yeah, and then they're expecting your response to be like, what? Or that's not a Christmas. And then they have like their whole prepared statement. <laughs> it's like, we don't care. We all know that it takes place at Christmas. So what? Yeah. That was my whole thing. Not whether it actually is or isn't. But I am very much on the side that it is not. And anything, I will stick to that. Christmas Eve movie, really. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we are posting this episode on Christmas Day. So Merry Christmas to all the ass clowns out there. Yeah. Happy holidays to those who don't celebrate. And for those of you new to the show, ass clowns is a term of endearment. Oh, that's right. For our yeah. Listeners. I guess there have I don't been want people to be confused by that. A lot of people popping up that might not know because that does go back a long way. <laughs> I actually think you referred to either kevin or his friend paul in the wonder years episode which was like our sixth episode as an ass clown yeah. and that's kind of where it came from i right. think Some, it was either that or i was thinking maybe on the bug juice episode i was calling oh like, yeah them ass clowns <laughs> you were really thrown around yeah. ass clowns a lot in the early days but yeah we really latched onto that as the term for our beloved listeners so anyway follow the show on twitter at greatest pod subscribe on apple podcasts or podbean give us a rating and review if you get a chance on apple podcasts i would say like just an outpour of reactions to the show all of a sudden and i'm really uh liking it people just randomly weighing in we have a nice little community of ass clowns that's growing every day that's right yeah people are spreading the word and you know what it's time it's high time this <laughs> podcast is yeah. great <laughs> I'm tired of this false modesty. Yeah. This podcast deserves credit <laughs> for at least how much time and effort I put into it. Yeah. It deserves some sort of recognition. That's true. You really have given your life to this thing. I know. And I can always use it as an excuse for not having any other life. On the other hand, though, I do wonder what would your life be without this podcast? It would actually probably be pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> Watching the same movies, still taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> Just to talk to me about it later. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's pretty much it. <laughs> Before we started doing this podcast, that's pretty much what that's was what happening. That's what life was, yeah. My memory is like so shitty now that I there are times where I'm like, do I need to start making notes in my phone about topics to talk about with people? Because yeah. <laughs> like I, I, there'll be like six things throughout a given week. And since people are barely seeing each other anymore because of COVID, I'm like, all right, there's no way I'm going to remember all of these things. <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah, you know, I get it. It's fine. It's sad. Old age. It's a thing. So anyway, regardless of whether or not Die Hard officially is a Christmas movie, it does take place on Christmas Eve. We are doing it for this year's Christmas episode. Yeah, it's our Christmas special. Right now, the plan is to have one more episode in 2020 to be released on New Year's Eve. That's right. Hopefully. And then we'll take a short break like a one week break and then we'll be back in january yeah just for the next friggin frigid three months after december just the worst time of the year for me but should be a good time to do podcast episodes because there is nothing to do in january of that march era die hard came out in 1988 it was directed by john mctiernan written by jeb stewart and Stephen e d'souza 
based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. McTiernan, this was his second entry in what would be a pretty historic action movie run, and it would definitely burn out, Yeah, but he was at the height of the genre for a while. The year prior, he did Predator. There you go. Follows that up with Die Hard. I don't know that you're going to find a bigger back-to-back action yeah, really. <laughs> combo. You look at these movies, and it's not something that someone looks b- back on with the fondness of, oh, these are some of the greatest films ever made. But Some people do. Pretty solid action movies, I would say. Very entertaining, and there's uh, definitely a well-made quality to them that you don't always have in, say, a certain like Steven Seagal movie. After Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, and it's at that point you're thinking, okay, so is McTiernan still alive? And if so, why don't we hear from him anymore? And they, oh, keep reading. Medicine Man in 92. Oh, boy. Not really sure what that is. It's another <laughs> Sean Connery movie. Didn't do well. Last Action Hero in 93. Okay. Don't really think it was a huge hit. It was kind of competing against Jurassic Park that summer. but it, I like I it, think though. it did okay. He returns to the series with Die Hard with a Vengeance in 95, and then The Thomas Crown Affair in 99, and then all of a sudden, the wheels start coming off. That's such a weird turn that he did The Thomas Crown Affair with Pierce Brosnan and Rene Russo. Rollerball in 2002 was a massive bomb. (laughs) Lost a ton of money. Yeah, well, what's that dude's name from American Pie? It's like... He's Chris like, Klein yeah, is in it. In LL Cool J. Oof. Yeah, I mean, that is not a recipe for success. And then 2003, the next year, things didn't get any better when he would reunite Samuel Jackson and John Travolta in a film called Basic, oh, yeah. which also was a massive disaster. And yep. he has not directed anything since that. Wow. So that, that ended it. it. <laughs> that ended it all. He hung him up after that. He's run out of Hollywood. Die Hard came out in July, was a summer blockbuster. However, in recent years, I guess, has become sort of this alt-Christmas classic Yeah, which in some people's eyes. I feel like we don't need to talk about it anymore. Had a 25 to $35 million budget and went on to make around $140 million at the box office. Certainly an impressive outing. 25 to $30 million. I, it feels more expensive than that, doesn't it? I mean, with all the helicopters yeah, and explosions Yeah, it's hard to gauge. Shit, yeah really from the 80s but yeah you would think spawned four sequels and had an immeasurable influence on the action genre as the next decade plus was people pitching movies as die hard on a dot 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 (laughs) you'd have die hard on a plane like passenger 57 or air force one or die hard on a mountain with cliffhanger it was all very centered around this idea of overwhelming odds against one guy in a contained situation. However, the thing that you have to remember about Die Hard is the casting was tricky, and it basically took Bruce Willis as a nondescript TV star, mostly known for starring in Moonlighting with Sybil Shepard. Whoa, something we should do for this show. And he was only in one other movie called Blind Date. And made him an action star overnight because virtually every action person in Hollywood turned this movie down. Holy shit. Including Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Harrison Ford, Richard Gere, Clint Eastwood, Burt Reynolds, Nick Nolte, Mel Gibson, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, Paul Newman, and James Caan. And eventually they had to pay Willis $5 million, which was unheard of, because that was like what the top people were getting in movies at the time. 
I can't believe that many people turned it down. And you it was considered some of those guys, a yeah. huge risk financially. Oh, wow. Yeah, well. Because this is a year after Lethal Weapon, right? Which I think w- was Well, successful. yeah, but Lethal Weapon doesn't have anything to do with it. No, I know, but like, <laughs> if that movie was successful, I, why were so many people thinking that this was going to be such a failure? The only thing I could think of was a lot of the movie was rewritten on the fly okay. with a lot of improv and a lot of changes. So maybe the script in its pre-production stage was not particularly enticing. It couldn't have been if that many people were like, no, thanks. I believe Frank Sinatra played essentially the same character, although the name is different in the movie, The Detective, which was also based on a Roderick Thorpe novel. It might not be the same character, but Sinatra was like somehow still tied in with this at one point, which is crazy considering how old he was at the time. But the thing that I think they weren't, accounting for because as i've said many times on this podcast before something exists it's hard to know what it will look like and what people's reactions would be fair but the thing that they weren't considering was that bruce willis out of all of those guys listed i think maybe a few of them could have pulled it off but most of them he has much more of an everyman persona which is what sort of makes this movie what it is there's certainly a blue collar attitude to him if it was Schwarzenegger or Stallone, there's no part of you that's thinking the stakes are really that real just because of their already established on-screen personas. Arnold In other words, if it's Rambo be- or the fucking yeah. guy from Predator, you're like, all right, well, he's clearly going to just kill everybody. Arnold Schwarzenegger playing like a normal guy is just so... I mean, even in Kindergarten Cop, it's kind of weird. He was trying <laughs> to guy- actually turn away from action at the time and turn this movie down to do Twins. Oh, he was gosh, trying to do yeah. comedy. Wow. Yeah, he wanted a little range, I guess. I get it, but yeah. And for the villain Hans Gruber, they plucked an obscure unknown out of the theater, Alan Rickman, who was already sure. in his early forties and had never appeared in a movie before, and then would go on to be the archetypal villain that would be often imitated, rarely <laughs> Slick duplicated. Back hair. Yeah, he was a much cooler, charismatic villain than you had typically seen in action movies and thus would then be ripped off and imitated over and over again. And rarely would they get anywhere near as memorable as a villain as Hans Gruber turns out to be. Go get these guys from the UK. I mean, that's where acting was invented. So, I mean, it's safe choice plucking this guy out of the theater and then goes on to have an illustrious career. So two big stars get their start from this movie essentially in Hollywood Bruce Willis, it's hard to say that he's still an A-lister. He appears in a lot of movies. He sort of gets a pass kind of, because everybody's joke is Nicolas Cage. Yeah. But he's not that far removed because he does so many straight-to-VOD movies. That's true, but he does still have that like movie star quality to him, I feel like. Yeah, he's got a little bit more mystique left than Nick Cage, but not much. Yeah, yeah. He's one of those guys that if you meet his price, he will just do it. Okay. And that's sort of... Can't blame a guy. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he hasn't really found, as an older actor, some role in a movie that's kind of a different look for him. It's usually like they're still marching him out to do... Well, it's pr- he's probably best when he's part of an ensemble like Moonrise Kingdom. Yeah, that's where he's true. he's just sort of fit yeah. in as a little... I guess that's a good example. We did just do it recently, but... Yeah, but I know what you mean, yeah. where he's he has that's like kind of a small part, all things considered, because there's so many people in the movie. But yeah, most of the time he's playing a ripoff of this character, McLean. Yeah. And 
in something considerably worse. By M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I don't know. People do like The Sixth Sense. Yeah, yeah. He's had a lot of ebbs and flows to his career, because I would say like pre The Sixth Sense, he was sort of starting to fade rapidly. That brings him like all the way back. Has another run in the 2000s. Things have started to fade again. He's right. looking for that next jolt. Die Hard takes place at the fictional Nakatomi Plaza, which was actually filmed at 20th Century Fox's actual headquarters. Yeah, I can remember like going to a show and the like the opening band was that that was their name, Nakatomi Plaza, and I'm like, that's an awesome name. I don't think things really <laughs> took off for them, but I was like, great band name. I think they actually charged themselves rent because that was the studio that made Die Hard. I think they like paid themselves to use this building. Oh wow. The movie has a lot of analysis out there already. We're not exactly breaking new ground. Not too surprising there. Yeah. I feel like this would be a fairly talked about movie. So some of the things I just want to touch on quickly, I don't necessarily think we need to spend a ton of time on it. There is some criticism out there of the film. Essentially, it's a two-hour and 12-minute movie that tells the story of redemption through violence, often extreme violence. Violence seems to be the answer for everything in the movie. That's true. Some of the politics involved in the film seem regressive under the microscope of analysis. There's the very prevalent fear of foreign invasion, which permeated a lot of 80s films especially <laughs> it was action a thing, films definitely and even Red though Dawn. yeah even though the japanese characters in this film are not the villains the company the nakatomi company plays into that idea of the a japanese invasion of america which was something that a lot of movies touched on there was a very blue collar feel and mentality going on in America at the time. I wouldn't say that it's that dissimilar yeah. from now, except I would say the rhetoric has been cranked up to 11 now, and we're a lot more on edge all the time because of the internet and social media. But You feel like McLean was like a Trump supporter? Probably, but I don't know for sure. It just seems like there's a... You hesitate to use certain words, but almost xenophobic yeah. m- mentality to this movie. Not necessarily McLean. No, I know. McLean right. is just a pawn yeah. in the story that brings in the foreign invaders, has the weak Japanese company needing to be saved by the American, and then the traditional female roles being pushed to the forefront. Why is his wife working? It's such a pain in the ass that she's fucking up their family by being successful. <laughs> when she becomes in charge de facto leader of the group once takagi is killed she's talking about the pregnant woman she's talking about wanting the the uh, hostages to be able to go to the bathroom it's a very maternal role rather than it is contrasted against the male characters i'll I'll maintain she's uh strong in a leadership role though in what would be a stressful situation yeah, these aren't necessarily my feelings. They're yeah. just things that are written about. She's also portrayed as a bad mother. Her daughter is always asking her to come home. Her, her <laughs> she work is always is more like, important. okay, put the maid the on the phone. Or on, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bye, honey. Yeah, and we were joking about the fact that this fucking office Christmas party is on Christmas Eve late at night. Presumably a lot of the people present would have kids. I know, and here they are, just debauchery in the office, cocaine, the topless chicks. Yeah, we were 
joking when we did Silent Night, Deadly Night about the babysitter played by Linnea Quigley that gets killed <laughs> right at the end of yeah. towards the end of the film, and we were like, so wait a minute, this little girl's parents are just out late at night on Christmas Eve. Well, I know this is just how it was, I guess. I, yeah, I, so now it makes sense. Right. Die Hard makes Silent Night, Deadly yeah. Night makes sense. I think there's probably. A decent amount of truth in some of that analysis. I do think that it's like with a movie like this, so you kind of got to just look at this as closer to pure an- entertainment than something that needs to really be overanalyzed. I would agree with that for the most part. I think none of these things particularly bother me if a movie ends up still being entertaining. Yeah. And the movie exists on the back of practical effects, crazy stunts, death-defying actions taken by the hero character that suck you in and get the pulse pounding it's very exciting i can imagine seeing this on the big screen back when it came out in 88 boy it is just such a remnant of a time this 80s heading into the 90s just the excess limousines these beautiful offices in this skyscraper oh yeah it's definitely a product of the decadent 80s oh yeah and john mcclain the main character almost absurdly all-american blue-collar hero in a way that's a throwback to the cowboy characters that are referenced in the movie but also like a dirty harry maybe toned down a little bit but he's willing to bend the rules and we as an audience are supposed to feel his frustration at the bureaucratic red tape right that's always holding him back you do look at this i mean i know it's terrorist but but they're not though that's the whole thing well they're referred to in the movie as terrorists. Well, yeah, because that's the ruse. Right. Okay. They want yeah. them to think that they're uh, that's politically true. motivated, but it's they're a not. Bank robbery disguised as a terrorist event. Yeah, which in and of itself is like, how much more '80s can you get? The original <laughs> right. novel. Let's have terrorists. No, let's change it to the fact they just want money. Because <laughs> right. what is more '80s than that? Yeah. Greed is good. That's this, true. This is the time Wall of Wall Street. Wasn't it the same year, or was it the Gordon year before? Gordon Gecko. I don't know. Anyway, what, what were you saying now? <laughs> I can't remember. So you have the principal from the Breakfast Club, Paul Gleason. You have one of the Fratellis from the Goonies, yeah. Robert Davi. You have the mom from the Goonies, Mary Ellen Trainer. A lot of recognizable uh, supporting. Rick Dukeman, and of course, the man, a personal hero of mine, a spirit animal, Carl Winslow <laughs> That's right. from Family Matters, a.k.a. Reginald Vell Johnson. I know him best as Carl Winslow, though. I actually think this is a shared universe with Family Matters. I believe that's fair. He just decided to move to Chicago immediately following this. Yeah. And change his name from Al Powell. He had to settle down after this event. Al Powell is such a terrible name. It is. He's like, well, I think I'm going to go by Carl Winslow now. (laughs) And Harriet is the wife that he's talking about. Now, granted, she was working as like a, what is she, like the elevator operator in Perfect Strangers or something? How many years later? It is Family Matters. I think Family Matters probably started like 89 or something. Well, yeah, but when does it take place, though? I mean, Harriet can't be pregnant, I don't think. That's a good point. And it's only a year later. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) So, all right, Carl Winslow had a secret family in Los Angeles. (laughs) I could make it work. And also, that dude from, I mean, I know you're not a Ghostbusters guy, but the guy from (laughs) Nightly News is uh, in Ghostbusters, plays Walter Peck, very kind of a similar hateable douche as he is in this movie yeah and hart bachner who plays ellis is basically just 
oh my god he just represents the decade yeah he's kind of doing like a dennis miller impression but more crossed with just i mean he's kind of like a character from wall street yeah either wall street or american psycho yeah <laughs> <laughs> babe he he'd be like, like the t- he'd be the type of guy that would get the axe to the back of the head yeah right <laughs> paul allen yeah he's a paul allen all right so let's jump into it there's a lot of different stuff that happens in this movie. We're going to try to hit the major details. I don't know that we need to describe all of the action sequences. Probably not. Although we might want to because some of them might be fun. There are certain movies that you're just better off seeing before you listen yeah. to us because I don't know how we would convey the absurdity of some of these moments any better than what you see. I should say I hadn't watched this movie in a long time. I mean, maybe like... 15 years like it, it oh yeah me too. it had been all along and i found myself enjoying the watch it was a, a fun viewing yeah it's kind of a long movie yet it sort of flew by I both times yeah. that i rewatched it <laughs> things happen very quickly yeah i was listening to another podcast talk about die hard in preparation for this oh, no. and one of the complaints was like oh we could get into it faster it should probably be 15 minutes shorter and I'm like, I don't know. The beginning is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie. Yeah. Really. I, would I don't agree. know. We'll get into it. All right. Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Christmas Eve, 1988. NYPD detective John McClane arrives in Los Angeles intending to reconcile with his estranged wife, Holly. That's right. Played by Bonnie Bedelia. Very early on, we see him packing heat on the plane, which seems crazy. Like now. Yeah. There's a lot to take just from these opening minutes. First of all, he's got his eyes on virtually every chick. <laughs> There's a strange yeah. eye contact thing with, with the with that, flight attendant. Uh, yeah. And then... There's a beautiful blonde that jumps into her boyfriend's arms, but before she does, he's like kind of following her with his eyes. Yeah, well. So they're sort of implying that just because he's well, listen, trying to get back with his wife, that doesn't mean he doesn't have eyes. He's been alone in New York for a while. We, we don't know how long, really. I think he might say to Argyle, is it like okay. six months? Maybe it is that. So can know. you blame the guy for having a wandering eye? Come on. The opening here, it's a lot of like hazy red and orange LA. And to me, this is the 1980s. Like oh, this, yeah. you know how like when they're filming the sun or like the hot heat, the hot heat, you know, how the <laughs> right. hot heat, it Picks causes like those like wavy picture. lines sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And just the orangey sunset look to this, it just, that's what I remember about the 80s for some reason it's a very 80s aesthetic for me i don't know why that like 80s Times square that makes sense to <laughs> those me are the two I, I mean, things yeah, i think of. i do think it was like mostly nighttime in the 80s <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like, it, it is it, the city lights it's nighttime yeah that's like to me the 90s it was like always sunny and never snowed or rained true yeah there's just like certain things that you just i don't know but yeah it was always very urban Yep. And nighttime. Right. <laughs> and even if there isn't cocaine use in the movie, you just knew it was going on. For me, the poster for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first movie. Oh, yeah. That's the 80s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. And another movie that like, seems like it's mostly dark out. Yeah. We might have to do that movie That's someday a great on the movie. show. Yeah. <laughs> I love right. that movie. <laughs> Let's 
if you call everything great, yeah, <laughs> then yeah. is anything really? No. But that's a okay. great movie. <laughs> <laughs> it really speaks to me. How about that? You know what movie sucks is two, The Secret of the Use. It is so much better I know than that the third movie, though. I've never seen the oh, third. It's like basically Turtles in Time. They go back yeah, in time. I know. Okay. All right. <laughs> You've never seen it, but it's you were reading up on the plot. Yeah, but you said it's basically, isn't that what it's called, Turtles in Time? I don't think it's called that. <laughs> Turtles in Time was like the video game, I think. There were those nights at Chuck E. Cheese, man. Everybody, oh, yeah. you'd meet like f- six new kids, you and your siblings or your cousins, or your friends, whoever you're there with. Everybody just put their quarters up so on that Ninja Turtles games. game oh, where yeah. you could play four players. Right. How many times have was I in a group of people that just beat that game in the arcade because we had all of our quarters out? High-fiving. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. You didn't know then that those were going to be the best days of your life. Yeah, a lot of good memories of Ninja Turtle <laughs> video games for me. Arcade <laughs> games. Turtles in time. Yep. Yeah. Isn't there, like, aren't they wearing, like, samurai outfits or something? Yes. I think I had, like, action figures maybe of that. Or something. I know that I had like samurai related material, but I don't think I ever saw the movie. Yeah. The biggest bummer in Turtles 2 Secret of the Use is April O'Neil. No Judith Hogue. Yeah. It's April O'Neil. April O'Neil Jace. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I think Feldman's not not in it either. He's not even one of the Turtles. That seems right to me. Yeah. Although it does have Kevin Nash as Super Shredder. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And. I guess it's. De- I mean, it has Vanilla Ice. I guess it's debatable which rap song is better. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know we were gonna go on a Ninja Turtles <laughs> tangent. <laughs> Where were we? Smoking in the airport, gun on the plane, <laughs> just a different time. Hey, really? There's a driver at LAX waiting for McLean, at- and this guy turns out to be Argyle. Pretty He's cool name. A first time limo driver. Yeah, and overly excited about it. Yeah, it's a fun little gag to have McLean riding in the front right. of the limo unexpectedly. I mean, the idea of a limousine even existing is kind of like the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> you know, we got a full bar back there, VHS. It's just like for yeah. a car ride. For a 15-minute car ride. Although, I guess it's L.A. There might be a lot of traffic. Yeah. Although okay. I've heard that during the holiday season, it gets very cleared out because most people are transplants. So there's a lot. It's almost like a college town. Right, right. It clears out during Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Best time to drive. McLean is taken to Nakatomi Plaza to attend a Christmas party held by Holly's employer, the Nakatomi Corporation. Yeah. And Argyle waits in the garage for this to all go down to see if mclean can patch things up enough to spend it the is night weird with his wife. that he's coming into it with his sleeping arrangement unknown doesn't that seem like something they would have discussed yeah i guess things have just gotten so weird between them that it's like there are a lot of things that seem unresolved with this script and this yeah. movie because it took me the second rewatch to even fully understand mclean arriving at all because the way that Holly acts when she first sees him, I was like, I know that the daughter asked about the dad, but she yeah. was like almost non-committal with her answer to the daughter. So it was like, does I'll she know what... that McLean is coming? It almost felt like she didn't even know the way she's like, John. Like when he's just in her office later. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's almost it... like she's surprised or something. It is strange. But in the beginning of the movie, you're kind of feeling like, is Ellis kind of gaining some ground here? Is I was never door- thinking that. He's so unappealing. <laughs> I feel like that door is open like a little bit like she's considering it. No. 
The cinematography of Die Hard was done by Jan de Bont, who would go on to be an action director in his own right. But I do think that the cinematography early in the film, those exterior LA shots, and then that use of shade and light coming in through the windows when McLean first goes into the building, it's such a weird, unique looking shot when he goes up to the main desk. It is. Uh, it I'm does... like, where is this? It doesn't even look like the same building from the rest of the movie. It's. Uh, it's a really cool looking thing for so I don't I don't know. It's it's a two second shot that I caught my eye. It actually kind of captures that feeling that kind of the situation you're discussing where that the idea of like things emptying out for the holidays. Yeah. Because like, it does feel like no one's around. Oh yeah, it's very quiet. There's almost an eerie silence early in the movie, even before the armed assailants descend upon the building. That's right. Before he goes up to the party. So he finds out that his wife Holly is using her maiden name Gennaro. Which, if we remember from Jurassic Park, there was Donald Gennaro, the guy that gets eaten on the toilet. I just imagine that they're relatives in some way. I would think. Shared yeah, universe with Jurassic right. Park and Family Matters. <laughs> and I like to throw less than zero in the mix as well. Anytime anyone's flying into Los Angeles in the late 80s. <laughs> For a holiday break. Yeah. It's the same Christmas that it Clay is, yeah. comes home and Clay gets involved. Clay and Julian with just driving around. Robert Downey Jr. Holly works up on the 30th floor, which are the only people left in the building. There is a Christmas party going on, and this Christmas party is insane. It makes me think that work Christmas parties used to be fun. The party's insane. The office is insane. Even Holly Gennaro's office is pretty nuts. Yeah, with the bathroom and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's really crazy. The architecture on the 30th floor is clearly influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright. It's supposed to... to recall falling water which is actually not that far from here where we were recording this how much money do you have to waste like how much money does your company have to waste if this is what you're making your office look like well even the 640 million that gruber wants to steal he even says to to takagi like your company will just get over it it's It's a a slight inconvenience it's nothing anyway yeah Everything plays into the decadent 80s. These offices, the whole floor in general, the party atmosphere. It reminds me a little bit of the Christmas party in Scrooged. Just these irresponsible adults. Remember in Scrooged, that hot chick from Perfect Strangers was like photocopying her butt or something. And then (laughs) she like wants to invite Bill Murray's character home with her. And then when he's like reliving this, he's like flipping out at himself for turning it down. (laughs) Even though the best part of that is even though the whole point of this memory is to relive when he first met Karen Allen, the woman of his dreams who he's trying to fix things with. And if he had gone home with that woman, he would not have met her. And yet even then he's like, you idiot, you idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is wild though. The idea of like office parties existing like this now is so, I mean, I feel like, we just got to a certain point where there was just too many like, drunk driving accidents. Drunk driving, even coworkers getting drunk and hooking up and causing awkward situations. Oh yeah, there were probably just too many HR complaints. There's right. too many liabilities. You're never gonna have it at the actual office anymore. Even if you watch like Steve Carell's version, the American version of The Office, yeah. they're having Christmas parties in the office with booze. I know that's which is something nuts. I've never experienced. Yeah. I, I, it, it almost it seems fe- unfathomable. Right, it would feel so weird. And yet, it would have been so great yeah. at certain times <laughs> in my life. Yeah, right. Not exactly now, yeah. but at a prior job. You feel like that's that a both scenario. both Matt and I worked at, <laughs> at a really <laughs> shitty company. Yeah, you feel like a, it just could have been a scenario that could have opened some doors that you really can't imagine. Ever being open under any other right. circumstances. Yes, exactly. That's the whole reason. I know. It was some creep like us who probably invented having <laughs> these Christmas parties. 
let's just bring booze into the office. It'll loosen everybody up. All of a sudden, <laughs> some person of the opposite sex that you've never talked to, all of a sudden there's a situation where you're talking to that person. Okay, the only reason to bring this up is because it plays out throughout the rest of the movie and it sort of becomes a plot point. So there's that guy on the plane and he's yeah. like, oh, your first time flying or whatever. And McLean's kind of like, I don't know what he's supposed to. Is he supposed so, to be yeah. tired or jet lagged? I don't even know what the what's happening here. I, I was taking it that he's like afraid. They've already landed. Yeah, I know. I don't know. And I'm like, it doesn't well, make sense. Yeah. So what does the whole thing he tells him to do? What does that have to do with? You're right. It doesn't. It, it has to be that he's jet lagged or something. So he tells him to take off his shoes and socks on a carpet and make fists with your toes, and it's supposed to do something. Yeah, and he does it, and he acts like it works. But I don't know what it's what what's being solved for here. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And I didn't really look it up. <laughs> also, this is his first time flying. So I guess he never even helped his wife move out here. Well, pretty baller move. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like she must make way more money than him. Oh, I'd say so. You look at her office, and I mean, look at how he's dressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just a standard cop in New York. Yeah, yeah. Which is a... A union job, and he probably does like okay, but she seems to be this high level person at a huge, or maybe like an executive even. company. Yeah. So anyway, that's why McLean doesn't have shoes and socks on the whole movie is because this guy told him to do this thing. Okay. Yeah, that's right. It, it yeah. seems like a stretch for this to happen, but okay. Yeah, especially since I'm not even sure what the benefit is. I'm sure somebody listening is like. Oh, it's this, you idiot. But like it's a reference to the cover of Abbey Road because <laughs> Paul McCartney isn't wearing shoes. Unbeknownst at first to the partygoers upstairs on the thirtieth floor, the building is under siege. Security guards are killed, a truck goes into the parking garage. That part is pretty cool when they just pull up and Theo and that dude just walk right up to that security guard and cap him. Yeah. I think you can sort of figure out what Laker game they're talking about. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> While McLean changes clothes away from everyone else, a German radical named Hans Gruber, played by Alan Rickman, and his heavily armed team... By the way, I didn't point out Hans Gruber, great villain name. ...start taking over the building. Those inside the tower are eventually taken hostage, except for McLean, who manages to slip away before detection which actually seems unbelievable the way it's presented because going across that hallway undetected with those guys so close seems not possible yeah unless the they were distracted by that the topless, topless woman yeah, which yeah you understand but <laughs> it is funny how the criminal characters you kind of get to know on a first name basis that's kind of unexpected like yeah you kind there's of know 12 of them. them i don't really have them all written down i didn't really want to bog it down with a bunch of but names. it's funny john mcclain knows him by first name he's like marco's dead he overhears stuff and that actually becomes like a, such a an interesting gimmick that they use throughout the movie is the radio that connects like everybody but, and they can all hear yeah. yeah they're all in the same channel which i think is a really ingenious way to keep dialogue going that's such a shared experience it's like everybody listening to christian slater and pump up the volume <laughs> The thing that we're going to learn about this group of people and that we've touched on a little bit is that they are specifically not terrorists. Although the ruse is that they are terrorists because they want to, to yeah. d divert attention away from what they're actually doing, which is just to steal money from the Nakatomi Corporation in the form of these bearer bonds. The best thing about Hans Gruber is he's 
pretty calm and collected and you know he's always thinking one step ahead of the police and everything but like <laughs> the one part that seems like he reacts like super emotionally to something is when bonnie bedelia says that he's not a good she just says you're a common robber. thief oh yeah yeah yeah. he's like i am an exceptional <laughs> yeah it's like so mad about it there are 12 total guys in this gang there's hans the leader he seems to know a lot about men's fashion he has a lot of charisma he <laughs> does that line about alexander the great and he says the benefits of a classical education so he's a, a an educated suave villain oh, yeah. that's right there's carl who seems to be second in command, played by Alexander Godunov, and just his a, brother, Tony. Just two pretty tall, long blonde hair. The people that were cast in this movie were cast because of their size and look. Most of them were not actually German, and a few of them could only speak broken German. That's why there's not really a lot of dialogue yeah. from those guys. There's Theo, who turns into the main safe cracker. He's like sort of this hacker guy, an early prototype of that type of character. And then there's the Huey Lewis guy. <laughs> who they positioned down at the front desk That's right. of the building. I can't believe that it's not Huey Lewis. It does look like him. But it isn't. It's some other dude. Gruber, who seemingly knows every intimate detail of the Nakatomi exec, I know. Joseph Takagi's life, somehow doesn't know what he looks like, though. He eventually finds him. He takes him away from the group and interrogates him. Even Takagi's sort of befuddled by what they want. At first, he can't figure out what's going on and eventually when it dawns on people they're always like disappointed in them they're like you're just thieves <laughs> like what the plan is kind of bizarre i guess you can put it all together and it does make sense but i don't know like how did you come up with this as like the the great uh, thing about the bearer bonds it sort of like confuses the issue but bearer bonds for what from what i can tell are basically like cash yeah, it must be. I There's no real way to trace them, and ownership is generally assumed to be enough. Like, if you right. just have possession of them, then it's like having cash. Okay. There's no way to really trace where they come from, or, or I guess, I don't know. But I was there's trying some to, like, other plan because Hans Gruber talks about them being on the beach collecting 20%. Is there some investment on the other side of this? I guess you would put them into a bank and, they and then would, just I don't know. collect interest. Who knows? Yeah. The plan is to steal $640 million in untraceable bearer bonds. They are masquerading as run-of-the-mill terrorists to conceal the theft. Takagi refuses to cooperate and is shot in the head by Gruber, which leaves it up to Theo to break into the vault. Yeah, and at that part, our, our hero, John McClane, is kind of eavesdropping on the situation. and I guess it, it's sort of unclear, but it uh, he rustles around after... The shooting, and then that alerts them all that he's there. Yeah, he accidentally bangs into something when he's trying to yeah. get out of there. And they don't know for sure, though, that he's there. But then they do when he eventually pulls the fire alarm. Right. But yeah, so what happened is McLean escapes the 30th floor and flees up a couple of flights, which happens to be where they take Takagi to find out the code to get into the computer, to open up this vault. He won't tell it to them. McLean is up there, too. He oversees... I don't know. He witnesses them shoot Takagi. The crazy thing about Takagi is just like, is this really worth it? Why don't you just give him the code? Well, it seems like several times throughout the movie, the terrorist group or whatever you want to call them, the armed assailants, are underestimated by people that they've taken hostage. And the first time here is by Takagi, who I guess doesn't seem to understand the danger. Yeah. Seems wild, though. I I would just give up the code. 
McLean pulls a fire alarm in an attempt to summon the authorities, but one of Gruber's men is able to call 911 and cancel the alarm. The triggered alarm does give away McLean's location on the 32nd floor, though, so now they know for sure that that sound they heard is somebody. And, of course, at first, Hans and the rest of the guys think it must be a security guard that was unaccounted for or somebody that slipped away from the party. Although, they, I mean, they are quick to point out most of these security guards are fat. <laughs> oh, I guess that doesn't happen until later, right? Yeah, well, they don't know how good he is yet. Yeah, they yeah, they right. just know there's right. someone that they don't have, and they don't fully appreciate how resourceful and how tough this dude's going to end up being. Yeah. <laughs> what a thorn in the side. Which, he does show his hand in an insane way, which we'll get to. Tony is sent after McLean, and they have a battle up on the 32nd floor, which ends with McLean killing him and thus obtaining his weapon, gun. which is a machine gun, and a radio. And so this will actually set up a blood feud between McLean and Tony's brother Carl. Yeah, that really carries throughout the movie. Yeah, it becomes a recurring thing and sort of, well, I can't say that it has like a huge impact on the group's plans, but it's it seems like, to get in the way occasionally of it, what it, yeah, it's Hans a, wants to happen. It's an additional motive for Carl. There's plenty of moments where it feels like Hans is just like, yeah, he's a nuisance, but as long as he's like away from us, we don't really care. But Carl is like out for blood. Hans has an infinite amount of faith in their plan that he, it'll he just does. work. He's not worried at all. And and in fact, when the police are brought into the situation, he's like, I don't want the police. I want the FBI because we find out he's one step ahead of them. Yeah, he knows every exactly move. what they're going to do at every turn, which plays into the plan itself. McLean puts Tony in an elevator and sends him yeah. down to the 30th floor. This is what I was alluding to. This seems like why give this away? There's 11 more guys that you're going to try to take on. I feel like you're giving up a decent element of surprise here by <laughs> bragging that you killed this guy and being somewhat boisterous about the fact that you have a machine gun now. I guess it's just supposed to be badass. It is. To get which, the audience pumped. It is. Yeah. So on Tony's shirt, it says, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> which Hans actually reads out loud. <laughs> I wanted this to be professional. Efficient, adult, cooperative, not a lot to ask. Alas, your Mr. Takagi did not see it that way, so he won't be joining us for the rest of his life. We can go anywhere you want us. You can walk out of here or be carried out. But have no illusions. We are in charge. So, decide now, each of you. And please remember... We have left nothing to chance. Get them back. Not mine. Security guard we missed. Usually tied up to this man growing fat on a pension. No, no, no. This is something else. Die Hard is a loud movie, and they used a lot of real explosives, real explosions, real guns. Not with real bullets, but you well, yeah. know what I mean. And Bruce Willis's hearing was permanently damaged from this, which I can Holy definitely shit. believe. Yeah. They were firing off like tons of loud shit. Yeah. 
multiple explosions in a skyscraper. Yeah. Which is uh, kind of an unsettling feeling now. And just a reminder, of course, that McLean is still barefoot. Right. McLean uses Tony's radio to contact the LAPD. There's some misadventures there, and eventually Sergeant Al Powell, a.k.a. <laughs> Carl Winslow. I, I do like the part when he's going through on the emergency channel, and that woman's like, what are you doing? Get this off. is for emergency. And he's he's like, like, I'm not ordering a fucking pizza, lady. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, well, we're going to have to send somebody down there to arrest you or whatever if you don't get off. He's like, good, send somebody. Okay, Al Powell, let's get into this. How fantastic... Is like is the AMPM mini mart that Pal is in when he gets that call. Yeah, it's great. Just loading up with like hostess snacks. I can relate to that haul too. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I can relate to the disgust. And you're like telling people it's for your pregnant wife. Yes. <laughs> it's like Al, I've been there, buddy. Yeah. No one believes it's for your wife. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, what he's holding that kind of just looks like if you just open up the cabinet in your kitchen. The same. We food used to there. make jokes about doing like food hauls i'm talking like almost 10 years ago okay with youtube remember yeah people would do hauls of like opening things and i don't know youtube is such a weird strange world that i'm just too old for i guess i don't understand why people watch this stuff but there's things of people like reviewing candles or opening up packages they got in the mail or they buy a bunch of stuff and then they just like show it to the camera and you're supposed to i guess live vicariously through these people sure yeah but we always thought it would be funny to like do a fast food haul video <laughs> and the weird thing is it's kind not of that exact thing but these things called mukbangs that people do i think is how you say it i don't okay. even really know yeah i don't know what it's that where is. people just eat a ton of food and it's disgusting wow and they just show you all the different food they got from like one place or something and it's just really horrifying. You're like, I could have a future in this. <laughs> yeah. But I was thinking about that with Al's haul here from this mini mart, just like a <laughs> pile of hostess. Twinkies and, and Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> I love that this dude at the mini mart just confident enough to give the cop shit. Oh, I thought I know. you guys only ate donuts. <laughs> yeah, that was surprising to me. So he gets the call about a disturbance at the Nakatomi Plaza. He's the closest cop in the area. He goes outside. The, he just walks, and the camera kind of follows him. And yeah, like, oh, I there thought that is. was like an awesome shot. It is. Because he sees the Nakatomi Plaza in the distance, and like up on the roof, there's like this flashing light, and you can't hear anything from where he is, but it does seem strange. And then they right. cut to them on the roof, and it's Carl and another guy pursuing McLean with machine guns. Yep. McLean ends up evading these guys up on the roof by disappearing into an elevator shaft there's a lot of elevator shaft stairwell and roof material in this movie certainly whenever he has to get into like those little ventilation shafts or whatever that's like my nightmare i just have horrible claustrophobia oof i would never be able to fit at this point (laughs) (laughs) after all those little debbie mukbang videos i've been putting on youtube (laughs) I do love that someone took the time to post a couple of centerfolds in the elevator shaft areas where like the maintenance stairwells Just are. Just those contractor dudes coming to work on the building. Yeah, every time McLean passes it, he like looks at it, and the second time he's like, "Girls, yeah," he, like touches it. <laughs> it's kind of like college football team like play like champs or whatever, and they like slap it on the way out. That's just what he does every time he sees that picture. So yeah, he ends up having to like jump down this elevator shaft to this try to like wild. get into a vent 
And it's one of the most famous parts of this movie, especially the shot of him in the vent with the lighter. With the lighter, yeah, that seems like it's been often parodied. So what happened was the stuntman fucked up and missed the first ledge, which is what happens in the movie. Yeah. And they decided to just keep it because it looked way scarier. I see, yeah, it works. And more dangerous. There's a lot of little things like this that I guess are theoretically possible, but do stretch the uh, credibility of this movie. Yeah, this seems wild that he would attempt this. Unlike a lot of other franchise-type movies that we've done on this show, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the sequels because I'm not super familiar with them. I've only seen Die Hard 2, I think, once, and I've never seen 3. I think I've seen all of them once except for 5. I never saw 5, and I saw probably parts of 4 over the years. But anyway, I just know that the one thing, though, that grounds the original in some kind of reality is that throughout the movie... McLean just gets the shit beat out of him. He gets shot. He runs over the glass yeah. later. He's just beat up. He's bloody. And it feels somewhat real. It does. Whereas that starts to vanish and he just becomes this superhero, inhuman guy over the next few films. And it sort of falls into what you could say that Die Hard was pushing against, which was the ridiculousness of these action movies. And. McLean, the character starts to lose that every man feel as the movies go by because he's totally clearly it not feels an more every man like anymore. Bruce Willis, the movie star in future movies. While Pal goes into the building for a closer look and he ends up interacting with that Huey Lewis motherfucker, McLean is confronted by two of the armed assailants, Marco and Heinrich. He kills both, recovering a bag of C4 explosives and detonators in the process. Pal is actually about to leave, and McLean is watching this from the window, so somehow, and this defies all logic, <laughs> and might even be the least believable thing in a movie that's sort of hard to believe, he launches this body out of the window of the building yeah, onto a cop car. It just seems like... It breaks through the window, right? It's the not... window had a hole in it already, okay. but yeah, he, has, he does have to throw it through the window to get the whole body out, but I think... Based on the angle and where the car was, he would have had to have somehow thrown this body like 40 feet or something to yeah. get it from, I don't know, it's some crazy thing, but the Imagine body being... falling on the patrol car is what actually gets Powell to know that there's something wrong, because he was just about to leave. What a crazy thing, though, and I mean, you kind of don't give it the credit it's due. In Die Hard, or even The Departed, where like Martin Sheen gets thrown out of the building, imagine just a body, <laughs> like you yeah. imagine seeing that, what a crazy thing to see so when mclean drops marco's body under the patrol car this prompts the assailants to open fire on the car as pal rapidly reverses he's like flipping out on the radio calling for backup which then in turn brings the lapd and eventually a swat team this leads to a whole mess of policemen down there led by the principal from robinson played by paul gleason the principal from the breakfast yep. club Playing basically the, the same, same character. Guy. Yeah. Just an asshole. <laughs> Although he does have some hilarious lines by the end of it. Yeah, he where does you're not turn sure. just a straight comedy. Yeah, if it's like, I guess it is supposed to be funny, but it just seems so out of character. But it's I, like a weird turn. He's just like so over the top, incredulous about the McLean character doing anything positive too. He's like, this fucking bartender up there, you're such an idiot, Powell, for like believing that this dude is a cop or bringing value to the situation from our angle. All right, let's talk it, Tom. I am, sir. Sergeant Powell, Al Powell. Dwayne Robinson, Powell, what's the deal here? What do these pricks want? 
Well, if you mean the terrorists, sir, we don't exactly know. We haven't heard a peep from them. Well, who in the hell you been talking to? We don't know that either, sir. He won't give us his name. But he appears to be the one who phoned in the report. He's killed one terrorist for sure, and he claims he's capped off two others. He claims? Powell, has it occurred to you he could be one of the terrorists pulling your chain? Or some nutcase in there? I don't think so, sir. In fact, I think he's a cop. Maybe not LAPD, but he's definitely a badge. How do you know that? A hunch. Things he said. Like being able to spot a phony ID. Jesus Christ, Powell! Could be a fucking bartender for all we know. TV's here. This movie has a lot of interesting stuff in light of the events of 2020 and how people feel about the police in general. There's the whole thing that we'll get to in a minute with Powell and his His history. His backstory. But one of the things that is definitely pervasive throughout the movie is an anti-government, anti-bureaucracy, anti-establishment as far as like rules. Powell is basically like Bradley Cooper from Place Beyond the Pines if he didn't blackmail the police force. <laughs> so McLean is fighting against this group of armed assailants or, or terrorists or whatever that you want to call this group led by Gruber, but it seems like the police are just as much of a nuisance with their red tape and their rules and oh, they're trying to stop him from doing it. And, of course, as viewers, we can see how ineffective and stupid they are. They can't get anything right. Yeah. Gruber and his goons, they know every step the police are going to do. They're not even remotely worried about them. They have everything figured out in advance, and only McLean seems to know how to deal with it. Is everything McLean doing in this situation like on the up and up? Is it okay that he's killing all these people? I mean, I know they're criminals, but he's certainly out of his jurisdiction as a police officer. I think taking hostages at gunpoint, and they've already killed people, is more than enough. Okay. Oh, you're worried that there's going to be charges against (laughs) McLean? Come on. (laughs) There's an attempted SWAT team siege, but as with almost everything that the local guys try to do, it it proves to be pretty ineffective. Snuffed out pretty easily. The armed assailants have a missile launcher, which they fire at the armored car. That's true. It is quite an arsenal of weapons that they have. McLean has to throw some of that C4 down an elevator shaft causing a huge explosion this seems like an insanely bold move to do i would be worried about the structural integrity of the building yeah i had the same thought although i don't really know that much about c4 and how what i could do nor do i know much about structural integrity of skyscrapers but it, it would make me think yeah ultimately it just kills the two of them with the rocket launcher to end the assault i don't know how it only kills those two i guess it lands on like where the elevator is on the floor that those guys were on firing know, the locket, rocket launcher. Crazy. I don't know. McLean is modeling his renegade cop persona off of cowboys. There's a cowboy discussion. A lot of cowboy references are references to cowboy characters or actors. Yeah, there's a cowboy discussion with Gruber over the walkie-talkie. So this is what makes this movie unique to me is that now that McLean took the radio from one of the armed assailants, he has one, Gruber has one, a lot of the other team has one, and then the police outside are on the same channel on the radio. So virtually everybody ends up being in communication yeah. throughout most of the movie in a way that makes it more entertaining than it if does. McLean was just on an island by himself up there. Yeah, it makes it hard to 
conceive someone getting the upper hand because everybody is communicating with each other is kind of aware of what the other party is doing. The vault that they're trying to get into has seven walls of security, seven different locks. Theo continues to work on those. He's able to crack through most of them himself, although he does keep telling Gruber, like, there is the electromagnetic thing, the last one. I don't know what your plan is for that, but I won't be able to do that. Right. Gruber's always just like, don't keep worry going, about it. Keep going. Just keep pressing on. I was wondering, though, is it practical for this vault to be in this office? As opposed to where else? I don't know. Bank of some sort? Well, this is an international company. They probably need some of this stuff on hand. And I guess okay. it speaks to maybe not trusting a bank. All right. Fair enough. But people and companies, they have vaults. Sure. I mean, it's believable. Okay. I can buy it. McLean and Powell form a relationship over the radio. Powell serves as like a sounding board for McLean when he's trying to figure things out, when he just needs someone to talk to. It's an interesting buddy cop dynamic considering they don't meet face-to-face until the end of the movie. Yeah. I like that angle. As I mentioned, one of the big things holding McLean back almost as much as the terrorists themselves is the bureaucratic red tape. And Gleason is sort of the face of that. He never wants to do anything. (laughs) He's always preoccupied with ass and guys asses and the mayor will have his ass and I'll nail your ass to the board. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of the departed when the one chick that Nicholson's with is just like, why are you always talking about each other's asses? And and he's like, shut up or whatever. (laughs) He's like, shut your mouth or something. But yeah, it does start going down like a weird road when it's just like nonstop talk of like ass and guys' asses and I'm yeah. going to have your ass. It's, kinda, I, it's just these like <laughs> cop guys in this, this era. It's kind of like John C. McKinley and fucking Point Break, too. Like they're just so intense. It's like Wesley at the end of Roadhouse. Yeah. The only thing missing is your ass. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. He's the fuck guys. Like yeah, there's a lot of like yeah. machismo talk that's built around ass. <laughs> and I always find it kind of distracting. <laughs> but yeah, Gleason is mostly just like a clown in this movie. Sort of the way he is in Breakfast Club too. Yeah. Where he is like this authority figure, but Powell is always like, dude, get shut up. Like <laughs> well, you're, you're such a jo- ruining this. So we should do nothing? <laughs> there's a little moment after Takagi's killed and the Hostages don't know what to do. Where Ellis, played by Hart Bachner, he's this stereotypical 80s yuppie douche. He makes his way into the office where Gruber is and he tries to negotiate McLean's surrender over the walkie talkie radio. Gruber wants yeah. the detonators, they want McLean to surrender. Do you feel like when Ellis was doing cocaine in Holly's office, that was like a, a power move? Like, I, I assume this guy has his own office. He's saying that he negotiates million dollar deals yeah i think holly specifically mentions his office and yeah. wanting it at the beginning of the that's movie. right because he's got a nicer bathroom something like that yeah which is hard to believe it seems like you could just live in their office their offices are nicer than my apartment which i is know really smaller and shittier in every way <laughs> <laughs> but yeah ellis is just such a douche i mean he's slimy but he's super overconfident which doesn't work out for him here yeah, I think to a lot of people who maybe weren't as familiar or never had been to California, I think he sort of like typified what, what they thought of like LA douches yeah. are, both in the entertainment industry and just in general. And I think McTiernan, the director, 
was a little bit confused as to what he was doing with this character. I don't think he really understood it. I think even Rickman was taken aback at some of the ad-libbing. Like when Ellis says booby, <laughs> which is you know a thing that Douche has said at yeah, that time. Yeah. I don't think Rickman knew what he was talking about. And, did, and his look of confusion for that second is like kind of genuine. 100% legit. He's just like, what? <laughs> but yeah, he fails because McLean refuses and Ellis is shot in the face, just like Takagi. Although this time it's within range of what the hostages can see, whereas Takagi took place on another floor, so now the hostages are freaking out. It's kind of a weird moment for McLean because it's like he definitely doesn't like Ellis, thinks Ellis is after his wife, but he is like, you idiot, they're just going to kill you. I did think it was kind of a redeeming quality that Ellis didn't bring Holly into it at all and pretended like he knew. That's true. I think he did that for selfish reasons so that he could be a part of it and think that he's the hero. Because it does play that way. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to talk to this guy. And it only makes sense if I have the connection to McLean in the first place. But still, he could have like backpedaled at the last minute and thrown Holly under the bus. There's a distraction set here by the assailants, the would-be terrorists, when they request specific political prisoners from around the world to be released, which of course is something way beyond what fuck it the principal from breakfast club can get accomplished (laughs) he's like i don't know if i could do this really and this is all setting up a fake hostage release plan on the roof based on these phony demands and all of this is just in reality to buy time until the fbi shows yeah hans begins teasing out the solution for the final security wall around the vault but he doesn't tell theo or anyone else i do like that all these guys went in not knowing the plan Yeah, the last part of the plan. Yeah, they just trust him so much. Yeah, yeah. The FBI finally arrives. It's Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. No relation. (laughs) Funny little gag. One of them is Robert Davi from The Goonies. Not a super positive portrayal of FBI agents, which is kind of different from a lot of times when we see them. They're usually like more heroic. Well, yeah, we'll think about the anti-government bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah theme in this movie they would be even worse because they represent a feds government policing agency they sort of have little moments here and there they're not huge factors in the movie i think that they throw in the joke about it's just like saigon and then the other one's like i was in junior high dickhead i think that was sort of a goof on other action movies of the era that always had to tie into vietnam in some way but whatever gruber Checks the explosives installed on the roof and by accident encounters McLean. This is such a cool little scene to throw in there and not something it comes you would out of nowhere. expect the first time. Yeah, yeah. I, it's almost shocking that these two, it, you don't feel a build here or anything. It's just like all of a sudden they're in the same room together. Since he had set his gun down, Gruber pretends to be an escaped hostage affecting an American accent. McLean offers him a gun. So, okay. There's a lot to get into in this little exchange here because I think it's sort of a debated thing because in the final product of the movie, it's unclear why McLean knows and sees through this and gives him an unloaded gun. The only thing I was thinking was when he's doing the eavesdropping that he saw Hans Gruber earlier in the movie. No. I don't think he's supposed to recognize Gruber. In the original script and i think that i don't know if they shot the scene or not there's a whole thing where the terrorists for lack of a better term they synchronize their watches 
and they all are wearing the same watch. I see. And so when he kills all the other guys leading up to Gruber that he's killed, he notices they're all wearing the same watch, and then ah. he sees Gruber's watch. That Gives did not away. make the cut of the film because it, it led into a whole other thing. It, it was like a byproduct of cutting something else that they sure. end up losing the synchronized watch thing. So a lot of people pick up on the cigarettes. It's a European brand of cigarettes that McLean took off of one of the terrorists. He offers Gruber a cigarette who smokes it. Some people are like, well, those European cigarettes are way stronger. And he doesn't remark on the different wow. kind of cigarette. Or he doesn't say what brand is that yeah. or anything like that. I think that's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, if you're picking up on that, I mean, that's really nice police skills by McLean. I think in order to enjoy the film and not fixate on things like this, I think it's acceptable to chalk it up to police hunch and just be like, he's a good detective. He's not sure about this guy. It would be super naive to just hand him a gun. We certainly have no reason to doubt McLean's skills and abilities as a police officer, certainly from a hand-to-hand combat perspective. So even if he isn't 100% sure, it still makes sense because why would he just hand this guy he just met? Marksmanship, too. doesn't make any sense to just give him a gun. Hi there. How you doing? Oh! Please, God, no, you're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no, don't kill me, please, no, please. Don't kill me, don't kill me, please. Whoa, 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 whoa. relax. Relax, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. What the fuck are you doing up here? What were you looking for? I managed to get out of there, and... Uh, well, I was just trying to get up on the roof, and see if I could signal for help, you know. It's just from here. Why, do, why don't you come in and help? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, forget the roof. Come on, come on. I said start. forget the roof. I got people all over. Come on, you want to stay alive? You stay with me. You smoke? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. You don't work for Nakatomi. And if you're not one of them... I'm a cop from New York. New York? Yeah. Got invited to the Christmas party by mistake. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah. Better being caught with your pants down, huh? (laughs) I'm John McClane. You're, uh, Handgun, Bill. I spent a weekend at a combat ranch. You know that game with the guns that shoot red paint? Probably seems kind of stupid to you. Well, time for the real thing, Bill.
All you gotta do is pull the trigger. Come on. you that accent you gotta be on fucking tv with that accent but what do you want with the detonators hans i already used all the explosives but did i i'm going to count to three yeah like you did with takagi oops no bullets fucking stupid hans you're saying when Gruber attempts to shoot him, the gun is empty. And there is a moment right there where McLean has a machine gun before that elevator. Bangs, oh, yeah. Where he could just shoot Gruber. Roast him. But he doesn't. Carl and two others arrive. Just as like McLean's getting done pointing out how stupid Hans is. For thinking that he had a loaded gun. Yeah. yeah and then he's like, oh, am I? Here come my henchmen. McLean is able to kill the two other randos, leaving just Carl and Gruber. Gruber, who noticed McLean's bare feet, instructs Carl to shoot out all the glass in the office windows, which then forces McLean to flee over the broken glass Just in his in bare time, feet. Just in time, because there's like those pucks that are basically like a flashbang. Yeah, and he ends up leaving behind the detonators. You could say possibly sloppy work on McLean's part. He should never have put the detonators down, but in his mind, he already blew up the c4 he doesn't really know what the detonators are for true and it has been a big plot point from the villain's perspective that they do need to get these detonators back for all the times that hans is calm he is upset about this detonator situation yeah and for the audience we don't know the full extent of what this plan is going to be right we're a little bit unaware of the last step when mclean is trying to like bandage up his bloody feet in a random bathroom he talks to pal about pal's time as a policeman and why he's like a desk jockey these days and pal gives us a bummer of a story where he shot a 13 year old kid yeah it is sad (laughs) and it's one of those things that is just sort of inserted into one of these movies that changes dramatically in a 2020 lens Uh, sure something i don't get though is they kind of keep referring to pal as like a paper pusher cop but it's like he is out on the street i mean he is out well he he tells mclean that He's a desk jockey who was on his way home when he got the call. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So that's why he was buying the food for his wife. Outside, the FBI agents now running the show, they order the power to the building to be shut off. This is where we see Rick Dukeman from The Burbs and Groundhog Day. He's one of these like maintenance guys. As Gruber had anticipated all along, the power cut disables the final vault lock, which allows his remaining men, to collect the bonds. A Christmas miracle. And this is the ultimate fuck you to police procedure and the way things are done. Because I mean, Hans is laughing at them, how predictable they are. We should be clear, when we say that this movie is like anti- 
government and red tape and, and in a way anti-police. It's not anti-police <laughs> in the way that is for social justice reform or please don't kill unarmed civilians or things like that. It's anti-rules. It's basically right, right. saying that police should be more free to do whatever they want is sort of why I, w- I would describe the politics as regressive yeah, I certainly, in the movie. Right, I certainly wouldn't say that defund the police is uh, no, 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 something no. they're going after here. It's more like guys who are a little bit more wild cards like McLean should have the freedom to do what's needed to be done to get the job done. And yeah. that is like sort of a prevailing attitude on the other side. It's like the criminals don't have any rules. Why should the police be hamstrung by so much red tape? Right. But obviously there's good reasons and we know that in sure. reality. But that's why a movie like Die Hard is still fun because you don't really need to worry about that shit. It's just what kind of crazy stunts are happening, the fun action. Absolutely. The quippy lines from McLean every two minutes. Just being a badass. Out of all those people I listed, could you see anybody else being able to deliver some of these comedic beats the same way Willis does? No, I mean, he's perfect for the role. No question. Yeah, I can't see Harrison Ford being able to do it Obviously, Han Solo is more of like a roguish character with some lines, but... But he almost has... There's more of like a sarcasm to it than the boisterousness of... Uh, uh, well, I would McLean. say McLean is very sarcastic too, but it, it, yeah, it it's like a completely me, different persona. Schwarzenegger and Stallone, we already ruled them out just based off of their physical prowess. They just right. seem like destroyers. I would say that James Caan... I don't know how old he would have been at the time. I think he could have done it. Don Johnson, I would not have ruled him out. He just never had any luck as far as movies went around yeah, this didn't time. Yeah, quite come together for him. I don't think there's as many the hot spot stands out there as me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's really going crazy for that except for me. Well, I don't know. What about me? And I can't remember the other people. But yeah, I just think Willis is such a lucky thing to fall into accidentally. Like, they're... 20th choice this guy from tv yeah it worked out great welcome to the party pal right <laughs> or come out to the coast so have a few laughs like I, I just yeah i can't see those other people pulling those lines off in the same way there's like a snarky feeling to it of fuck everybody that i just don't know that you could get from many other people i agree and this is the perfect vehicle for someone like willis gruber demands a helicopter be flown to the roof This is his plan to, quote-unquote, free the hostages. However, the FBI, in agreeing to do this, actually intends to send gunship helicopters to eliminate the group, regardless of collateral damage, to the hostages. And again, Gruber has anticipated this reaction (laughs) and is almost counting on them to cause some sort of violence so that his plan will work out. McLean finds the explosives rigged for the roof, and figures out it's all a double cross. Right, which he yells out on the radio. He's confronted by Carl, though, before he can clearly deliver the message to Powell, who's confused as to what he's talking about. This is, once again, though, McLean is just too quick for these guys at every turn. He he somehow... There's multiple times where these guys do have the drop on him. Yeah. And at this point, Carl, who is bloodthirsty, this guy killed my brother... I've got my gun to his neck now. And McLean's just like, nope, move the gun aside and just starts punching him. Yeah, Carl and McLean brawl. Anything about the 80s into the 90s and these like fight sequences is like 
a shocking amount of white guys doing like martial arts or like, like a shocking amount of like kicking. <laughs> you know what I mean? Carl's dropping some some sort of like kicking motions here. I just feel like this is not the hand-to-hand combat you would see out of just like a bunch of white dudes. It would have been better if Carl just dropped the gun on his own accord because he's so pissed. True. And he's like, I want to tear you apart. Well, because he does say this is personal. Yeah, you would think. And that is like a kind of like a lethal weapon thing, too. Riggs fights Gary Busey at the end of one. We got to fight each other with our bare hands. And you could see that being something that Carl would pull here. But no, McLean's got to knock the gun aside. Well, all that's happening. The helicopters are on their way. And Gruber then sees a news report on TV with McLean's children. And based on that and what they're saying and the pictures on the TV, he deduces that Holly Gennaro is right. also Mrs. McLean. Puts it all together. The other hostages are led to the roof while Gruber keeps Holly with him. McLean and Carl's fight goes on forever, and then McLean seemingly kills him by wrapping a chain around his neck and hanging him off of this thing. In a way that you're just like, well, it's a certainty that he's dead. Well, yeah, especially since you see him still hanging there in a few minutes when everyone runs by. He then kills another member of Gruber's squad and rescues the hostages just in time by opening fire above their heads on the roof to get them to get off the roof because he only knows that it's rigged to explode. This, in turn, causes the FBI, who's now just arriving with the gunship helicopters, to try to shoot McLean because they think he's one of the terrorists. And then probably the most insane part of this movie that's been completely insane thus far he then ties an emergency fire hose around his waist and jumps off of the roof of the building i mean it is funny how he's talking to himself about how crazy this is while he's doing it yeah that was sort of unique yeah Yeah, it was a little different you wouldn't see your schwarzeneggers or somebody like that questioning themselves right right showing fear really it is an insane move and would never work right yes and it would have been funny if it just didn't work in the movie credits (laughs) (laughs) he jumps off of the building just as gruber detonates the roof destroying the helicopters but the hostages made it off in time so basically i guess we can just take this i don't know I, i think i put it somewhere in the notes but we'll just say it now the idea is gruber was going to detonate the roof which would kill all of the hostages and the helicopters and make it look like the terrorists were killed, too. I, I would assume that he maybe was willing to sacrifice some of his own men. They don't really get into yeah. that, but I would think that that would be possible. So much is happening here that you are you do start to lose sight of what the goal is. Yeah, because he says later to McLean, if you steal $600, you can disappear easily. No one's looking for you. If you steal $600 million, they will find you. Right, right. Unless they think you're already dead. Yeah. So that's the plan. Although I still don't really understand how they were going to get out of here completely undetected. In the ambulance in the parking garage. Yeah, I know, but it just feels like it would have been suspect having it come out. Well, I guess they would assume that once things went to hell, there would just be so It'd much chaos. It would just be chaos. enough chaos, yeah. I guess so. I can buy that. Kind of like the Joker pulling the school, school bus, bus out. into the middle yeah. of the other school buses. Actually, speaking of that, when they first come up in the elevator, I, I was kind of reminded of the Dark Knight scene where they show up at the party. Because yeah. uh, it's kind of like the same thing. Like the elevator doors just open and they come in with the guns and everything. Wondering if maybe they were going to even put one of them, probably Theo, in a uniform and then maybe the other ones would be like under sheets or something in the back. Yeah. You know, if they were okay. going to play that kind of a long game. I don't Could've know. Been. We right. don't know because... 
Argyle, who has been following along on the radio down in the parking garage, he gets in the mix. I can't believe he waited this long. <laughs> well, he didn't. There was no one down there with him, and then he sees Theo come down to set up the ambulance, and that's when he crashes into Theo. That's true. Yeah, he did try to get out earlier, but he was blocked in. That's right. All the gates were closed. You're right. The helicopters are destroyed. Gleason has a funny line where he's like, "I, get, <laughs> I think we're gonna need some new FBI guys." I guess <laughs> that's his response. Yeah, that's we've reached the point of the movie where it's just like one-liner jokes from from him from here on out. A weary, battered, and bloody McLean finds Holly with Gruber and his last remaining men. He knocks one of them Huey out Lewis cold. Huey Lewis still in the mix, right? Yeah, he knocks one of them out cold and then confronts Gruber, who has a pistol to Holly's head. Gruber demands that McLean drop the machine gun. McLean listens yeah. in order to spare Holly. Here's another great quality of John McLean's. Incredible foresight. To be prepared for this scene. Well, he saw that Christmas wrapping tape and he That's knew right. what he had to do. Yep. <laughs> he distracts Gruber and his last henchman, Huey Lewis, by laughing maniacally, which somehow works. I know. They all start laughing. There's confusion amongst the group. McLean then grabs a concealed pistol that was taped to his back that contains just two bullets. Which I do think is a delicate operation. Try taping a gun to your own back. Yeah, I don't really know how he did it. (laughs) And I don't really know how he reached it, and I don't know how Huey Lewis doesn't see it based on the angles. It's kind of confusing. They use a lot of uptight close-ups, so you can't really tell where everyone's standing. But it does work, suffice to say. Oh, yeah. What was it you said to me before... Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. <laughs> 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 kills the last henchman and wounds Gruber who crashes through a window somehow. These windows, pretty sure windows that high up on a skyscraper are not that easily broken. I I would agree with that. Everyone's crashing through these things like there's no tomorrow. (laughs) Gruber grabs a hold of Holly's wrist, which, let's be real, they both would have went out immediately. I don't know how they're hanging on long enough for McLean to dive over. It doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Gruber tries to shoot up at McLean as he's hanging on, but McLean unclasps Holly's wristwatch. I guess it's a badass move for a villain, and you don't want to see like your villain character be weak here, but wouldn't you really be like, pull me up! <laughs> pull me up! Not 
I'm going to shoot you because then I'm certainly dead. Gruber falls to his death after Holly's wristwatch comes undone. We get another one-liner from the principal. <laughs> yeah. God, I hope that's not one of the hostages. <laughs> Rickman's genuine reaction here looks very real because he was being dropped off of some huge fall. Oof. And McTiernan told him he'd be dropped at the count of three and then dropped him at two. Oh, yeah. So he could get like a real look. You always love those. Yeah. And that's pretty much your ball game. Outside, McLean and Holly finally meet Powell. Yeah, McLean one, Terrace zero. But there's one last surprise, as it turns out. Carl's not dead, somehow. <laughs> this is like straight out of Friday the 13th oh, yeah. or some bullshit. How did he get down? I don't know. That seems crazy. And it seems like someone screams prematurely. So it's like, well, does one of the hostages like recognize him? Because he's got like some sort of a blanket on his head that he like throws off and he's got a machine gun. (laughs) (laughs) McLean just like sort of dives on top of Holly and they hit the deck. I guess McLean's just like, I guess I'm going to get shot. And then Powell, who's been afraid to use his gun ever since he shot a child. (laughs) Yeah. His moment of redemption. Yeah. See, everyone in the film is redeemed through violence. That's true. McLean fixes his marriage to Holly through violence. Powell gets his last heroic moment of the movie through violence, and he's able to like be a real cop again. Yeah. Holly has no choice now because her other suitor, Ellis, is out of the picture. So, Yeah, it's hard to say if everyone's learned their lesson. Is McLean going to willingly move to Los Angeles now? Join the LAPD? Or be partners with Powell? Yeah, what's the deal? I don't know. But it's basically Merry Christmas, motherfuckers. You That's know? true. It's Absolutely, over. yeah. <laughs> I guess if you wanted to push back against the regressive politics of Die Hard, you could say that there are prominent African-American characters in the film on both sides. You have Powell, who gets to be the last hero. Yeah. You have Theo's, Argyle and Theo. Theo's probably the smartest guy in the movie. Yeah, So there is some progressive politics at play, too, that was a little bit different from most action pictures at the time. I think at the end of the day, the people making the movie ultimately didn't really care one way or the other about that. I would agree with that. They just wanted to make like a cool thing. But that's part of film criticism. That's how it works. Sure. People analyze this stuff. It is fun. And I do think that the people that wrote this stuff probably do have those feelings, even if that's not how they intended it to come out i think just people when they write it sort of naturally goes or at to least a, maybe the source material no i don't know if necessary. yeah some of the stuff yeah the, well roderick thorpe was a former policeman right who wrote the book so yeah i would imagine that he was annoyed about some of the stuff that got in his way sure just like a lot of people probably are and yeah the fbi people seeming like buffoons <laughs> that feels a little personal <laughs> So Die Hard went on to be this huge action classic, and people call it a Christmas movie. Launched a franchise. It ends with Let It Snow. That's right. Now, and I wanted to ask you That is you a this. Christmas feel at the end. There's that scene where Powell's getting back into his car after interacting with Huey Lewis at the front desk when he's about to leave, and he starts singing Let It Snow. Okay. And he sings the wrong lyrics, like some of them are wrong. Yeah. Do you think that was like where it came from? in Forgetting Sarah Marshall when Paul Rudd does it. It could be. I, it felt, I had not it, put that together before. Like, noticing Powell singing the wrong... It's not the same wrong lyrics, but it's the same song. Because doesn't Paul Rudd's character go like, Oh, the weather outside is weather. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. And Powell is like, he's a lot closer with the lyrics, but they're still wrong. Yeah, it could be a nod. I don't know. I just found that interesting. Yeah, no, never put that together before. <laughs> Most people are like, interesting. Wow, that's a poll. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, so I would say Die Hard's Legacy was a good decade's worth of action films that tried to emulate it until CGI took over everything with The Matrix and the future of action movies became much more CGI based. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it's a shame, but things change. I think sure. if somebody were to make something like Die Hard now, it'd probably be seen as like a super cool throwback style. Yeah. It's just a tricky kind of I don't really think budget they... to navigate these days. There's certainly not a realism to a lot of the violence in, in an action movie these days, which I mean, you know, some people could say is good, but like, I don't feel like people getting shot or anything like that. It's just not in action movies. The way that it well, I think was most portrayed. are PG thirteen now to yeah. try to appeal to the largest possible audience. In a strange way, you would say that like R rated action movies have also sort of been marginalized a little bit. I would say That's that true. they haven't disappeared completely, but less of less. Yeah, prominent. and they're less high profile releases. Usually now they're starring somebody like Gerard Butler, and they're yeah. borderline straight to VOD. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that'll do it for Die Hard. I guess we'd like to wish like... all of the ass clowns a Merry Christmas. I think so. I feel like we, we did pretty good here for what started off as a controversial topic many years ago. Yeah, I enjoy the film a lot. I wouldn't say it's like one of my favorite movies or anything, but my point was we get it. You think it's a Christmas movie. You don't need to scream it at us all the time. <laughs> I, I don't think it makes you edgy or cool to pick a less traditional Christmas movie as your favorite holiday movie. I think it just kind of makes you annoying. To be fair, though, <laughs> what would make you think someone is edgy or cool? Nothing. I can't think of <laughs> When you're talking about movies, there are no answers that make you cool. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> I've figured that out. <laughs> yeah, come on. I think like the new movie that people love to throw in your face as a christmas movie is eyes wide shut i see that all over twitter this year and last year that's like the new hot one to bring up yeah which is just as much of a christmas movie as die hard which is to say it's a movie that takes place at christmas right i would almost make the point that eyes wide shut is more of a christmas movie but inverted because it is very much about a family relationship but people i guess would argue that die hard is too so it's true there's uh undertones of that Last year, we did Go and Silver Linings Playbook, two movies that kind of take place around Christmas and at Christmas and stuff. I don't know. I think you have to really be like It's a Wonderful Life or Home Alone. I count Home Alone. Some people... Oh, wow. Okay. I feel like Home Alone almost falls more into the alt-Christmas category. I don't know, man. That soundtrack is all Christmas Yeah, that's true. You're right. Okay. And it's so much of the imagery and then like the family reuniting, which is the Christmas spirit, which I think is an important element. Yeah. For me, it's like... Gotta have that spirit. Yeah. I I don't know. For me, it was just always the Christmas specials, really. So you're going like it has to be like straight up Christmas related with no leeway. That's what I would Maybe I'm a little bit more categorized as. Yeah. If I'm thinking Home Alone is. You're more progressive. I'm more regressive when it comes to. <laughs> You're like, it has to be Charlie movie. Brown Christmas yeah. or. Garfield Christmas. Mr. Magoo Christmas Carol. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I did love Christmas specials of things. 
Yeah, there are a lot of great ones. Those are TV specials, though. I don't know if that really is the same category what as about, like a theatrical um, Christmas release. Royal Tenenbaums, that has some Christmas music in it. Does it? I think so. I think that the Charlie Brown Yeah, Christmas it is a Charlie Brown it. Christmas, but there's always Charlie Brown references in Wes Anderson. Movies. Yeah, I know. I don't know. I didn't know if people were ever trying to make an argument. There is something that feels like the holiday times in that movie. Yeah, it's a good Thanksgiving to Christmas yeah, type movie. Yeah, I would agree. With the snow flurries and the one scene and all that stuff. Yep. <laughs> now, at this point, if there's even a hint of snow in a movie, it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, that's right. The Shining. <laughs> well. Yeah. The Hateful Eight. Yeah. That came out on Christmas, didn't it? It did, Around yeah. Christmas. So did Django. Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> Wolf of getting... Wall Street is my favorite Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely my favorite movie I saw on Christmas, I feel like. It was such a such a good movie to watch on Christmas. Yeah. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Let's get to recommendations for this week. Do you have one? I do. Oh, no. <laughs> Glee. I, I was actually going to piggyback on something that I think you did last December. Oh, no. <laughs> As a recommendation, when you did Muppet Family Christmas, yes, I, I've now watched twice one of my favorite Christmas movies of all time, Muppet Christmas Carol, streaming on Disney Plus, featuring the incomparable Michael Caine. It's a companion piece. It is to Muppet Family Christmas. Yeah, Gonzo playing Charles Dickens in it in a meta kind of role. I believe uh, I might be wrong, but I think that Jim Henson. This was like the last thing he worked on i do feel like it it does say in memory of jim henson yeah i I watched this movie a ton as a kid we had the vhs we've watched it the last few years i do enjoy watching this movie around the holidays i know people don't want to admit it or say it but i think there's been like a there's a clear delineation in quality like when jim henson's still alive and then the stuff that came out after Uh, i would say so considerably worse i thought you were going to say in quality and like the things that you recommend and the things that i recommend that goes without saying (laughs) i think people they get it if anyone was confused you recommended glee right (laughs) there is this great part in muppet christmas carol you know when they're taking him back and it's when he's with the ghost of is this something that's on disney plus you said it is yeah yeah but they take him to the party where like his nephew and all his nephew's friends are like having a party and the (laughs) They're all just like making fun of Scrooge and he doesn't realize it. It's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, Muppet Family Christmas can't be on Disney Plus, which I'm sure we've talked about because yeah. of the crossover of Fraggle Rock and Sesame Street and Disney doesn't own every character. They just own the Muppets. Yeah. A Although a little treasure, Lindsay's mom does own Muppet Family Christmas on DVD. I never even knew it was out on DVD. Yeah. There's something that doesn't look legitimate about the case. So okay, it could be a bootleg. Yeah, yeah. I'm not above it. No. But <laughs> saw that at her house last year and I was like, Oh this is amazing. Yeah, the songs. Oh god, don't even get me started. So my recommendation is a movie I just watched. It came out this year in twenty twenty. It premiered at Sundance. It got released in October. It's new to four K and Blu ray and I think you can really only get it on physical media or as a streaming rental. It's not on any of the streaming services yet for free and it's a movie called possessor 
directed by Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son. All right. I haven't seen a lot of 2020 movies this year, as everyone knows. Not a lot of opportunity. I think we should just let people know right now. No top ten We're not doing our best of 2020. Give us a second If you couldn't figure that out yet. I've seen a lot of people's top ten lists of the year, and I'm like, I haven't seen almost any of these. I, I don't think I've, I've seen ten. I, I can't say that I've seen ten new movies, ten 2020 <laughs> movies. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like something we want to do, and this podcast is really just all about what we want to do, and if we don't want to do it, then we're not going to do it. Yeah, so, unless a listener requests it, then we'll consider it. The reason I mentioned it is I would say Possessor is probably my favorite new movie I've seen this year. I also Who's really in enjoyed Anybody? Swallow, but this one's right up there. Jennifer Jason Lee is Ooh, in it, right. and Andrea Riseborough, who played Mandy in Mandy. Okay, yeah. And that dude who was in season one of Girls, who was like Allison Williams' boyfriend who left right. the show. I feel like I watched the trailer for this. Chris Abbott, maybe, is his name? I can't remember. Sean Bean is in it, too, briefly. Ooh. This movie is fucked up and weird. All right. It's a sci-fi horror movie. It's a lot like his dad's movies, David Cronenberg. There's a lot of crazy violence in it. There's also several cocks, some of them hard, some pussies. (laughs) Oh, boy. Graphic nudity, graphic violence. Wow. It's a fucked up idea. The ending is dark. Does sound like the best movie of 2020. Basically, Andrea Riseborough, I think is her name. She Uh plays like this assassin that possesses a person and uses the person to kill someone else so they they do assassinations by possessing somebody and then going to kill does it have repercussions for the person that does the killing you mean where like the possessed fucked up no like the possessed oh no they always commit suicide Ah, that's how they get out i got you but like yeah she is the person that does it and she gets like fucked up and it starts like blurring these lines and she it's all like weird and confusing, and there's a lot of visual stuff in it to represent crazy connections between her and the person that she's like possessed to do the assassination or the killing or whatever. Has this Cronenberg Jr.? I, I'm not familiar with other works of his. Has he done other features? Not to my knowledge. I don't know. Uh, I didn't really take that much time to look into it. Sure. But Rightfully so. Yeah, it's not for everyone for sure because some of the <laughs> doesn't sound it, but material it like is me. pretty dark. Sounds more interesting than Tenet. I have to rewatch Tenet. Okay. So I don't know. I think like some of the ideas in Tenet are pretty interesting too. I wouldn't say that Possessor is without flaws. There's some stuff that I would, you know, I wish was done a little differently, but it was pretty haunting in its own way and disturbing. I'm sold. All right, so that'll do it for Die Hard. You can check out Die Hard on HBO right now on demand, and you can yeah. check out A Muppet Christmas Carol on Disney Plus and Possessor, which is new to streaming rentals and Blu-ray and 4K Ultra and all that stuff. And we'll be back for one more holiday movie, or I guess you know we always—I always feel like we try to pick something good for what we're doing for New Year's. Yeah, it's a classic movie for New Year's Eve. One more 2020 entry. Hopefully things will work out the way we want, and <laughs> that will all actually happen. Okay, yeah, <laughs> which I feel like we say every episode. Well, now. you never know. That's true. This day and age, there's a lot of things that could happen. It's a great point. You never know when there's going to be an unexpected hiatus for some reason. Yeah, depression being one of them. <laughs>
All right. So thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. Send us a tweet. Let us know what you think of the show. We love hearing from you. We'll talk to you again real soon. It was December 24th on Hollis Avenue, the dark. When I seen a man chilling with his dog in the park. I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear. Looked at his dog, oh my God, a ill reindeer. But then I was yelling because the man had a beard. And a bag full of pity, 12 o'clock at night. So I turned my head a second and the man was gone. But he must have dropped his wallet back dead on the lawn. I picked the wallet up and then I took the pause. Took out the license and then it cold said Santa Claus. It's a goddamn Bruce Willis movie. So a yippee ki to all of you motherfuckers.